Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sal Dietry. Sal, you excited about tonight's show? Ed, you know, as we head into summer, it's some time for us to take off and really reflect, you know, on our goals, our life, you know, our work. What makes us happy? And it's amazing, you know, you uh, sent me some uh, some stats that Gallup says a staggering 87% of employees worldwide are, are unhappy in their work. And in America, you know, even as prosperous as we are, that number is 70%. This has been going on, Gallup has said, you know, pretty steadily for the past 16 years they've measured this. It just shows even with all this technology, all this talk about worker productivity that people are still finding an emptiness in what they do uh, from 9 to 5 every day. Tonight we're joined by Hugh Welchel, the Executive Director of the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, author of the book, How Then Should We Work? Hugh joins us to talk about focusing on the true meaning of our work, working to contribute to this society, and genuinely leading work in fulfillment and satisfaction. Hugh, welcome to Grace in 30. Thank you. I'm great to be here. So, Hugh, um, the statistics Al read are pretty discouraging. Uh, just a simple question. How did we reach this point where people are so unhappy with their work? Yeah, it, it is very discouraging. And um, it hasn't happened overnight. It's taken a while. But really, in the last 150 years, our culture has moved to a place where work is either everything or it's nothing. And then sometimes it kind of flips a lot back and forth. We either make work too important or we don't make it important enough. And I think it's become an idol in a lot of people's lives. And anytime you have something that you worship, particularly if it's your work, it's going to disappoint you. And I think that's one of the big problems. The other problem is kind of a cultural thing. And particularly uh, particularly Christians who have historically had a very positive view of work have moved into an area in our culture, particularly in the last 150 years, where we see some of the things we do in our lives as spiritual, like going to church on Sunday, and some of the things we do in our lives, like going to work on Monday, as secular. So we've separated our faith from our work. And typically, we go to work and we work like everybody else. That has not been the case historically for, for Christians. And it's a huge shift. And as a result, a lot of people find a lot of dissatisfaction in their work. So you sort of had a, a, a revelation about this. You came to, to this thinking uh, some time ago. T- tell us the background, the backdrop of I that did. story. I did. I did for a fact. Uh, I had been a Christian almost all my life. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family uh, and really was stuck in that spiritual, secular divide. And I would say things like, did you hear about John Smith who quit his job at the bank to go into full-time Christian service? Well, to me, that meant he was either becoming a pastor or a missionary. And, and I really struggled with that. Probably in the middle of my life, I was probably in my 40s, I was living down in Orlando, Florida. I was running computer companies at, those, at that time. If you'd ask me, Hugh, what do you do that's important to God? I would have said, well, I teach Sunday school at my church. I'm an elder at my church. I sit on two or three nonprofit boards and are you know, concerned about the poor and some of these other things. Never would have said, I go to work 60 hours a week at a computer company, and I do that for the glory of God. That was the farthest thing from my imagination. And just had no way of even thinking about it. But the more I thought about it, the more I really struggled with it. Why did God not care about what I did uh, from Monday through Friday? 
and talked to some people. They were without answers and, and actually went back to school and started studying at a seminary to try to understand this. Well, an interesting thing, the people in the seminary, they didn't, they didn't have an answer for me either. But I, interesting enough, I found the answer in church history and started reading about the Reformation. And people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, the leaders of the Reformation almost 500 years ago, they understood faith and work. In fact, excuse me, I can make a strong argument that they used faith and work as one of the cornerstones of the Reformation. So this is something, it sounds like it's become uh, you know, your higher purpose. You were working in the, in the IT tech industry, That's right. and then you came to this realization, and you, it seems like you sort of committed your life to, to this cause, correct? I, I really did, and I'd like to tell you it was an instantaneous thing, but it took me about 10 years to work through this, reading stuff. You know, when, I would read something from Martin Luther where he would say, the work the milkmaid is just as important to God as the work of the priest. You know, that was heresy in his day. It's still heresy in most of the churches that I go to today, because uh, they just haven't thought through the implications. And as a result, most people, particularly people of faith, do not find the purpose and significance in their work that they were intended to find. And as a result, and I know this is true with a lot of millennials, they get so discouraged with work, they go look for purpose and significance in other places. And see, I would say take back um, to the very beginning of the Bible, book of Genesis, look at Genesis um, 2.15, it says, God put Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And we were made to work. And I think that has been lost uh, in a lot of our churches today, even. Yeah, I think that's fascinating that, that work was a good thing originally. It was, yes, it was it in was. the garden before the fall. That's right. A lot of people think that, that work's part of the curse, and that's not true. Now, the fact that work is hard is part of the curse. Go back and read Genesis 3.15. But people don't realize that when we live in the new heaven and new earth, when after Christ comes back and, and everything's put back the way it was supposed to be, we will have work. You can read the prophets like Isaiah, and one of my favorite quotes is from Isaiah, or excuse me, from Micah, when he talks about there'll come a day, and he's talking about in the new heaven and new earth, when everything's put right, that we will pound our swords into plowshares and we'll turn our spears into pruning hooks. And everybody reads that and says, there you go, in the new heaven and new earth, when God makes everything right, there won't be any more war. And of course, that's true. But what they miss is those are implements of work that we will have work and it will be good because we will no longer work under the curse. I tell people, think about the best two minutes you ever had at work. How everything went right, you were on your game, you, you, you know, you were just, you are hitting it, right? And I said, you know, in the new heaven and new earth, we will work every minute of every day for the rest of eternity will be like that except better. Well, look, you, you bring up a, uh, an incredible point, which is often people become dissatisfied and they quit and find another. They just go to the next job, That's right? Right. That's and, right. That's or, right. That's or they 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 decide that they've got to do something radical, which is I've got to go work for an NGO. I've got to That's go, right. That's right. you know. And none of that is is you know this is really a disciplined process. Yes. That you talk about, and it's two disciplines. One, it's the yes. discipline of understanding one's faith, Absolutely. and it's also the discipline of going through this journey. Maybe that's something first and second. Walk us through what, what you refer to, yes. you, as, uh, you know, the four-chapter gospel and how yes, yes. how we bring that into this discipline yes. of finding purpose in God in our work. Yes, and it also explains a lot of, of 
for while we've come up with the secular spiritual divide. You know, I talk to a lot of young people, and, and one of the first things I tell them is, you have to understand this, there is no perfect job. They've been kind of sold this idea that this is a perfect job out there, and all they've got to do is find it. You know, no job is perfect. I mean, I work at the Institute. This is an organization I created. I created my own job. And there's still things I have to do that I don't like to do. Um, so, so I think there's this illusion out there that's been kind of sold, particularly to the millennials, that there's this perfect job and you just got to go find it. Nothing could be farther from the truth. One of the things we talk about a lot, and once again, getting back to, to, to people of faith, I think we have lost this larger vision of, of this redemptive story told in Scripture. And it starts at the very beginning of the book of Genesis ends at the end of the book of Revelation. And what we've done, we've chopped the Bible up into so many little bits and pieces that we don't see this unifying story. And we often talk about it in this framework. We, we call it the four-chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation shows the way things were. The fall explains the way things are. Redemption shows the way things could be. And restoration shows the way things are going to be. And the problem in the church today is we've truncated that four-chapter gospel, and most churches only talk about two chapters. They talk about the fall and about redemption. The problem with that is that the gospel then becomes all about us. As Dallas Willard once said, the two-chapter gospel makes us, um, it really makes the gospel the gospel of sin management. It's all about us. And if you don't read the first chapter, you don't know what we were created to do. If you don't read the last chapter, you don't know where we're going to end up. And so one of the things that this bigger framework does, it begins to, to, to pull us away from this um, focus on ourselves and our own situation and really brings us back to Genesis, and we begin to understand what we were created to do from the very beginning. And what is that? I'm glad you asked. If you go back and read in Genesis uh, 128, sixth day of creation, God's created everything, he's finishing up, he's wrapping up his work, he comes down to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he tells them, let me tell you why you were created. I made you for a specific reason. I made you to do two things, and this is why you're here. The first thing, I want you to fill the earth with my perfect images. The second thing I want you to do, I want you to subdue the earth. And that word subdue is literally the Hebrew word kabosh, and in that context it means to go make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. So I want you to fill the earth with, with these perfect images of God, these human beings, and then I want you to make it into a place where they all flourish. What an exciting task that we've been given, right? And I would argue that's still valid today. That's still what we're required to do. Or, or, and, and it's through that we find joy. It's through that we find fulfillment. It's through that we find purpose. Now, I would suggest that that commandment or that uh, mandate, if you will, has been repeated throughout Scripture. One particular example is in Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles who've been taken off to, uh, to Babylon and tells them in this long letter, he says, you know, you, you don't forget the cultural mandate, this, 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 this passage in, um, in Genesis. Even though you're exiles in a foreign country, you're still required to fill the earth with God's images and you're required to continue to subdue the earth. But let me show you what that looks like when you're not in charge. Then he says one of the most incredible things in, in all the scriptures that I think is very applicable to us in the church today. He says this. He says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city that I've carried you into exiles, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, if you think about it, 
That is the basic principle of every successful business that's ever been created from the beginning of time. And, and why is that true? Because it's one of the principles that God made. It's woven into the fabric of creation. You know, if, if, if as a business, if you take care of your customers, guess what happens? They take care of you, right? And, and you're prosperous and you're successful. Um, so that's what we have to understand. And this idea has been lost by the church in the last 150 years. If you go back, I can make a strong argument. If you go back and look at Western civilization, the whole uh, last thousand years of Western civilization, forget the last hundred years where we've kind of messed up, almost everything that was done of significance, whether it was starting um, colleges, hospitals, abolishing slavery, women's rights, you make a list, great art, great music, uh, great inventions, were all done by believers who understood that God had given them talents and resources and opportunities to go into the world and make their communities flourish. And we've got to get back to that. So you're talking, really, you've kind of a nice segue into what you call in your book the cultural mandate. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you have more to add to this. I am curious, where do you think we are in all this? Because, you know, I read some of the quotes in the book about this uh, Bethlehem Steel executive that he never was yes. taught. I've heard many people yes. say they've never been taught by their church uh, the importance of their work and how to, to fully integrate their faith in their work. Uh, they're not taught that there seems to be two classes of citizens in, in the body of Christ. There's people that work for the church and are ministers and work for a formal church, and then there's everybody else. Wh right. where, where are we? You're, you're trying to affect this change yes. and, and bring about a new attitude. Where do you feel we are in the process? Well, it, it, that part's a little discouraging. We still have a lot of work to do. We've done some, um, some surveys here at the Institute, and we suggest, based on what we've seen, that only about 10% of kind of the evangelical Christianity really understands the proper place of work uh, as a spiritual exercise within their lives. So we still have a lot of work to do. And particularly, if we get back to this idea about impacting people around us, one of the things we talk with a lot of business leaders about is, is that, you know, God's given you your company not just to go make money. And we talk a lot to business people about what we call the triple bottom line, that, yes, as a company, you're for-profit, you do want to make a profit. That's important, and, and God honors that. But there's some other bottom lines you look at, too. You not only want to produce um, physical capital, but you also want to produce spiritual capital. You also want to produce social capital. You want to do things with your, your organization that brings about flourishing within the space that God has given you to operate, you know, whatever that community might be. So this is an important message that we need to keep continue to push out, and, and we're, we're getting in touch with and, and speaking with more and more people all the time about it. So, And there are a lot of other groups as well. So God has really kind of raised up a number of organizations that understand the problem and I think are saying the right message. Yeah, it's funny. You, I think the world, secular business, gets this. I mean, just one example of many is conscious capitalism. Yes, and absolutely. and and it's really all about loving your neighbor, and and right. and, and right. their neighbor is their stakeholders, their supply chain, right. their customers, their employees, everybody, and they try to come up with these scenarios that are win-win-win. You know, win for everybody. That's right. That's right. Uh, what are your thoughts about some of these these movements that you're hearing about, like conscious capitalism in the market? 
I think they're all good. They're all very important, and they're all driving in the same direction. We have a good friend that's actually um, that gets this stuff, and he's he's an entrepreneur and started a number of companies. I think he runs about five or six companies now. Two of them he actually runs inside of prisons, and he uses the prisoners as as workers that work for him. And it's fascinating because um, the prisoners have to really be, I mean, because he pays them. And, of course, they get paid 50 cents a day when they work in the prison. He pays them $15 an hour when they work for him. So there's a big demand. All the prisoners want to work for him. And, of course, they have to be on best behavior. So it, that helps the prison. But an interesting thing has happened. As he has had been doing this now for a number of years, the recidivism rate for the people that go through his program that work for him is almost it's down to nothing. They don't have hardly any repeat people because these guys begin to make money. Guess what they do with it? They begin to send it back to their families. They begin to pay restitution. They begin to get self-worth, and it builds up the self-image. Uh, even these prisoners, it's really quite a remarkable program. Work has such a potential to positively impact our culture, and we've completely lost sight of that. It's one of the things we've got to get back to people to understand. Because if work is only a means to an end, we miss the whole idea of why God made work to begin with. Well, Ed, one of your favorite stories is of a, a 90, I think 90-plus-year-old 90 woman in New York who's been cleaning this same uh, condo apartment building. It's an office building. Yeah, for years. And, and they interviewed her, and she said, I just love cleaning and keeping this right. place well. And here's just a humble servant who's found this incredible joy that other people yeah. are just astounded in, and she's just yeah. an office cleaner. And, and that's so true. I mean, I, I was at a conference a number of years ago in Missoula, Montana, one of the beautiful places on the face of the earth, and did a conference and, and spoke a couple times, and I preached at one of the churches on Sunday. A guy comes up to me and says, he says, I was at your conference. He said, it was just, it was life-changing. He said, you have to understand, I'm 55 years old. He says, I wash dishes for a living. He said, I became a Christian about 10 years ago, and I thought the only thing I could do at my work was occasionally witness to somebody at work. He said, but you have to understand, I'm way back in the kitchen. It's hot, steamy. No one comes back there unless they have to. He said, but what you're telling me, that there's intrinsic value in my work, that every dish I wash, if I wash it to the glory of God, in ways that I don't completely understand, my work combines with other people's work in the, in the restaurant, and together we produce flourishing for our community. And he looked at me, and, I, and, and, and tears were running down his face. He said, that makes all the difference. Tell me about this. Let's talk for a minute about kind of, you know, trying to get at this early, right? Because I think you yeah. mentioned the millennials, and, and this goes back to what opportunities, what we're seeing in, in, in the formidable years, in college, in high yeah. school, because a lot of times, you know, what we've been talking about, and we all see this, we, you know, Ed and I have probably lived some of this, is, you know, you decide, hey, I want to do this, and you get out and you get a job in this, and, you know, 10 years later, you realize, you know, this this is okay, but this isn't exactly what I was sort of my passion. And then you that's do right, meet people right. who find that incredible passion. They're, they're just built for whatever they do. Yeah. How do we start bringing this into academia, into even the yeah. secondary education yeah to help people really look at their whole self. Absolutely. It's very important. I mean, you know, there are a few people that from the very beginning, they know what they want to be. I was listening to a football coach the other day. I'm a big football fan. He's a big football, uh, college football coach and has been very successful. And he said, you know, at, at like age six, 
he was with his father, who was a football coach, you know, on at a game somewhere. He watched these guys coach, and he thought, I'm going to do that when I grow up. And it's all he's ever wanted to do, and he's incredibly successful. That's the exception to the rule. Most of us, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, and I'm 65, right? <laughs> um, most of us, you know, start doing jobs. And, and this is what I tell young people all the time. When you get out of college, go take a job. It's really not that important what you do because you don't know what you're good at. You need to go out and work for 10 years to really figure it out and figure out what you're good at and, and really what you're passionate about. And, and this idea that, you know, you're going to step out of college and look for the perfect job, that just doesn't work. And so there's a sense that we have to find out who we are, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, and then we have to learn something. I tell people all the time, I feel like I've just, in the last 10 years, really got to the place where I'm, I'm really of some value because I've had enough experience, I've had enough life lessons to really understand how to do the things that make me successful. Um, and I think that's really true about everybody. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, I've created a higher purpose survey that I run people through, and it's both you know self-reported and, and an ex externally reported, where people who know the subject well anonymously contribute and, and give feedback. And people around you can see you really well, and we don't like to listen to our relatives. Right. We don't like that's to right. listen to our friends because we see their flaws, and, and when they criticize us, it pisses us off. But I tell you, we've we've done these. I've done these surveys with forty somethings, and one one guy who's a very close friend of mine just said, "Why didn't anybody tell me this when I was eighteen? Why didn't anybody when I was twenty? You know, say, well, yeah. think of things like this. Consider, and a lot of the times, maybe a person doesn't know at eighteen, but the people around them see them. I, I listened to Warren Buffett on TV yesterday, and he said, "You know, I tell people go find the job that you would do if you didn't need a job." And it's, it's really simple. I ask people all the time, if you, tomorrow you woke up, you had $10 million in the bank, and you didn't have to go to work, what would you do? What would you spend your time doing? Right. And that's a powerful indicator of, of really what you're uh, created to do. Right. Um, so in terms of vocation and calling, helping people find out their higher purpose, is this sort of what you're doing? I sat in that class with you, the, the sort of the journey of faith class, and I know you're doing those sort of things. Um, is there anything else your organization is involved in to help people to to uncover their, their higher purpose, their vocational higher purpose, as I call it? Yes, we, we, do, we do programs on college campuses that kind of wrapped around some of the same thing, helping uh, young people, particularly while they're in college, begin to think through some of these issues. Um, we've developed uh, a number of uh, homeschool curriculum, pieces of homeschool curriculum. We have one on economics, which we've been told is the only homeschool, it's, it's, it's designed as kind of an economics 101 for a um, senior in high, high school, a homeschooling a senior in high school. It's the only curriculum in economics that's written from a biblical perspective and a free market perspective, interestingly enough. And that is, um, is done extremely well. And we have another one specifically on calling to help seniors in high school really think through what it is that they're called to do and begin to think in the right way about analyzing who they are and what they're called to do and some of these sort of things. So um, so particularly the younger people, we, we are in the process of launching a consulting uh, organization that's going to work specifically with Christian business owners to help them kind of weave some of this into the DNA of their companies, uh, some of this stuff about faith and work. But it, it, to go back to something you said earlier, I think it's very interesting. If there's one book I could recommend besides mine, right, would be, uh, Oz Guinness wrote a book called The Call, and it's probably almost 20 years old now. 
But in that book, he says that our primary calling as Christians is to become disciples of Christ. But then he says out of that primary call flow four secondary calls, right? He says it's our call to the church, our call to family, our call to community, and our call to vocation. One of the things we try to tell people is all the work that you do is important. The work that you do in your community, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. The work that you do in your family, I mean, your role in your family changes as you go through life, right? I just became a grandfather, and it's great. I love it, you know, but I've been a, I've been a son, I've been a father, and, uh, but, but I've, had, I've had work to do. And some of that work wasn't easy, right? But once you begin to realize that's all the work you do, whether paid or unpaid, particularly as a believer, is really done to the glory of God, to serve the common good, and to further God's kingdom in this place and this time, you begin to realize that, that all the work you do is important, that none of it is, is insignificant, and that there is intrinsic value in, you know, as a mother, in every diaper you change, there's a purpose in that, right? Even the things that you do that no one else sees. You know, one of the things I hate to do at work is fill out my expense reports. But I've got a new attitude, right? So when I'm filling those out, I'm doing it to the glory of God. It changes everything. To your point, I think the sooner we can engage, uh, the better. And, you know, I, I commend you for kicking off this uh, engagement with with colleges, but also in the secondary school. We had a guest on who is a, a church here in Northern Virginia that has formed a relationship with Fairfax County Schools. And they are actually the only church organization. Again, they don't go in and, and preach the gospel, but they go sure. in with Christian values, and they're mentoring kids in the school. And part of that is, wow. you know, you can bring higher purpose into that. The second point I'd bring up is, to your point, find value in something we do. That's something Ed and I are trying to show every week on this show is, Find value in helping a neighbor, being a reading buddy, doing this and that. And, and sadly, they're just, even here in Arlington County, where we've got the largest millennial population in the United States, they're just, there are too few who show up at the doors yeah. of these organizations. There aren't enough people taking the opportunity to get engaged. And I think that's another big calling uh, for our younger people in our society today is to get involved. So, Hugh, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure I get in the call to action. We, you know, we're about not just telling great stories here, but we want to get people right. engaged and to do something, get off the couch and do something that changes their lives and or changes the lives of people around them. So right. what, what sort of things would you like to challenge our listeners to do or think? or? Well, let me, let me use one story in closing, which I think is very important. It's a story about an old um, cathedral being built in, in the Middle Ages, and there's a prince wandering through the construction site looking at people that are working. And he sees one guy sawing, and he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm building a scaffold so we can get up and paint this wall. He comes up to another guy chipping on rocks. He says, what are you doing? He says, he says I am uh, forming these rocks to, make, to, to put in, the, in, this, um, in this archway. And finally, as he's walking, he sees an old woman sweeping up trash. He says, woman, what are you doing? She says, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. You know, it's not what you do. It's the way you think about what you do, right? It, it, it's, it's one of the things we want to call people to is, is not to go out and do a bunch more stuff, right? Most of us are really too busy now. But we want you to think differently about a lot of the things that you do. Now, that being said, I think particularly as, we, as I talked about those four categories, you know, we need people that are stepping up and doing more things in the community, right? We need to be serving in the community to bring about flourishing in our communities. We, we need to be serving in our churches to bring about flourishing in our larger communities. We need to see what we do at work is bringing about flourishing. So I think the bottom line is that 
you know, I'm tr- we're trying to get people to just have a paradigm shift in the way they think that the purpose of work, whether it's paid or unpaid, is to bring about flourishing within their communities. And I think if people take that to heart, we could see changes that would that would just be incredible across communities, across cities, across our country. You remind me of when that same story when this a sweeper at NASA was asked what he's doing. He says, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. There you go. There you go. It's a different, it's a paradigm shift. Look at things a different way. Well, look, thank you, uh, you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for the work you're doing and adding purpose to a to our work and with the work that people do. If listeners want to find out more about you, Welchel, author of the book, How Then Should We Work? or the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, please check them out at the, on the web at tifwe.org. We'll be posting information uh, about these resources on our Facebook, Twitter, and website. A replay of this show can be found at the grayson30.com and wera.fm websites 24 hours after airing tonight. Ed, my friend, talk us out of this one. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night, everybody, and be sure to tune into Grace.